Welcome to the Limerick Treasures podcast, the podcast where we interview interesting and influential people about their lives and find out what it is that they treasure about Limerick. I'm your host, Katie Flannery, and this week's guest is multi-million selling author, Darren Chan. So Darren Chan, otherwise known as Dara O'Shaughnessy, you have written an enormous amount of incredibly popular fiction series, such as the saga of Darren Chan, the Demonata, the City Trilogy, the saga of Laurentian Krepsley, and that's not including your standalone books and your other short stories. And not only that, the saga of Darren Chan series, the three stories were combined and made into a film called Cirque de Freak, The Vampire's Assistant, which I saw myself in the cinema in 2009. So... Needless to say, (laughs) you've had quite a successful career thus far and it's still going. So I suppose there's a lot to unpack there for a start, but can I start from the very start? So I know you you were brought up in London for the first six years of your life. I know I'm going back to the very start there, but you moved over then back to Limerick where your family is from. So I suppose like, I know it's kind of cool now to be into fantasy and vampires and comics and become more cool and people are into it now. But I know years ago it wasn't as accepted and I suppose you were kind of marginalised if you were into that. So did you find that when you were growing up or was it? Uh, It was very much a niche love for me. You know, there weren't too many of my friends into horror as much as I was. Uh, When I got older in my teenage years, then yeah, there was, um, you know, at secondary school, I did meet up some friends who they loved it as much as I did. But yeah, I I always loved horror, even from the age of six. I I can remember when I was still living in London, seeing my first Dracula film. Yeah. just been blown away by it. I love being scared as a child. I love the thrill that horror gives you. Um, I, used to, I used to believe they were real. You know, I, I think that's the difference between children and adults. Children can really, really believe in these things. But um, even thinking they were real, I just loved it. I thought it was brilliant. So yeah, as you say, there wasn't that catering for horror from the industry back then. So when I was growing up, there was nothing like goosebumps or point horror, which meant if you loved horror as I did, you generally made the leap to adult horror quite a bit earlier than you probably should have. So, yeah, you know, I was born in 1972. So, you know, from the early 80s, or when I started reading, you know, proper horror books. And like most people, horror lovers of my generation, you know, I discovered Stephen King and James Herbert. You know, I was still in primary school when I read Salem's Lot, my first <laughs> Stephen King book. So I would have been at very most 11. I think I might have been a bit younger than that. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things I wanted to do with Cert Freak years later. I mean, that's fast forwarding nearly 20 years. But... With Cert the Freak, uh, which I wrote the first draft in 1997, I was about 25. I, I, I read a, I, as I said, there was no Goosebumps when I was growing up, so I missed out on the whole Goosebumps craze. Mm. And one day I was babysitting a young cousin who was asleep in my aunt's car. She was off shopping around Limerick, so I was stuck in the car. And normally I'd take a book for me to read. I'd forgotten that day. So I was looking around the car. I knew about it from, you know, the books had been very successful and there had been a TV, I think there'd been a TV series of it by that stage. So I was, I was aware of it, but I'd never read it. And so I started flicking through this Goosebumps book. And um, I noticed two things. One, I would have loved Goosebumps. You know, I would have been, if that had been around when I was eight, nine, ten years of age, I would have devoured all the Goosebumps. I would have absolutely adored them. But I could also see, as an adult author, the mechanics were very straightforward. You know, each chapter ended with a tiny little scare. And then it was usually laughed away at the beginning of the next chapter. And then what I thought when I was flicking through this was, what I would have loved even more was something that had all the accessibility and catchability of a Goosebumps, but which had the darkness of Stephen King or Clive Barker or James Herbert. And as my brain started worrying, I had this idea of a boy who meets a vampire at a circus and reluctantly becomes his assistant. And the idea of telling a vampire story from the point of view of a child really intrigued me. Vampires have always been popular. 
I've gone for at least two major phases of Vampires of Amador. Buffy was around when I first started, and you had Twilight later on. But yeah, vampires have always been cool. They always come in and out. They're, all, they're always there. I, I love vampires, but I can never find an original way to write about them. I'd always wanted to do a vampire book, but I didn't want to repeat the ordinary type of Dracula story. And this idea of telling it from a child's point of view and being able to write for, a ch- for an audience of children, that really uh, captured me and set me off on what became my Darren Shan career. Yeah. Well, I read that you got your first typewriter at 14 and that's when it all started. So like, was that something, you know, did you start writing as a teen? I think I read that you've loads of unfinished scripts and books and you, you've said that they're never going to see the light of day. So was that something you were constantly doing as a teenager, just writing and writing horror stories? It was. I mean, even from a very young age, from the age of six, I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to be lots of other things at that stage. Um, I wanted to be an astronaut. I was saving up my pocket money to become a $6 million man. <laughs> I loved the idea of bionic implants. Um, that, that love of writing stayed with me and it became my driving force through coming into my teenage years and then all the way through my teenage years. So yeah, I started from about the age of probably 11 or 12, 13 or so. I began trying to write more. Um, now, two things. One, it's very difficult for children you know, to write a fully functional book. There's a lot of things you have to learn. You have to write a lot of bad stories learn to write good stories. Mm-hmm. So I'd glibly set out to write you know, the next Lord of the Rings. I'd get a few chapters in and realise well, it's a bit more to this than I've realised that it was side. But that's when I began to you know, write short stories and doing it in my spare time. And that was the big difference really when I hit my teenage years. I began writing for myself. Mm-hmm. Until that point, I always loved writing, but I'd only do it for schoolwork. If we had a, an assignment to write a short story, I'd love it and I'd go off and I'd start tapping away. But in my teenage years, I began writing stories that weren't for school. Yeah, sometimes I'd show to my friends but mostly they were just for me and I was learning from them and you know, making my mistakes with no one to see and gradually getting more ambitious and building up to longer stories. And I tried a few novels, didn't work out. And I was still actually in school when I finished my first novel. I was 17, but actually, no, I started it when I was still in school. I think I finished it a little bit after. That's never been published. I might return to it one day and try and flesh it out and you know, see if I can um, see if, it, if there's anything in there worth salvaging. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. for my teenage years, writing was, it was just what I loved doing. You know, and I, I always say, I, if I wasn't getting paid to write as a job, it would be a, a very serious hobby for me. It's something I would be doing as a sideline because I just love telling stories. Wow. Yeah, well, you can tell you have a great passion for it. And, you know, I was surprised then when I found out that you actually went to college and you studied sociology. So I know it's not creative writing you could have went to, you know, but it's not a fair cry from it really either, because I suppose maybe the sociology aided you creating these characters, just understanding human behavior and, you know, just maybe having an interest in people that probably lended to your writing as well. Definitely. Yeah. I actually studied sociology and English. It was a two-pronged course. I ended up majoring in sociology because I actually I enjoyed English, but I found sociology really, really fascinating. And it definitely has helped in my writing. If you look at my vampire books, you know, I took a sociological approach to those when it came to book four of the series. That's the first three books are set in our world and you know, in our society. We don't really see many vampires. And in book four, you know, the main character, Darren, goes off to this mountain in the middle of nowhere where the vampires have their base. And so I started asking, well, what would these creatures be like? If they did for hundreds of years, you know, if they could come out at night, if they had to drink blood to survive, what would their society be like? And I drew in elements that I'd, you know, studied at, at universities from anthropology and other things like that. For you. I drew upon the old Celtic uh, ways of life, the Masai, modern day Masai Mara, the samurai in Japan. I weaved all these different elements together and it made them very, very realistic. I think the reason those books in particular have been so popular, or one of the reasons, is that it does feel real. It feels very much like stepping into this 
of society and it just feels very very natural and I don't think I could have done that without a, that sociological underpinning mm. I always say to young writers or not so young anyone starting out as writing anything you study can be helpful I think there are writers who have it in their head you've got to go and do a creative writing course you don't it would be helpful certainly but so will sociology so will psychology so if you go out and work straight into the workplace that will be helpful writing is about experiencing life and thinking about life and bringing those things into your stories. Even if you're a genre writer, like I am writing fantasy and horror, I draw things from real life all the time. And no matter what you do in life, no matter what path you take, it's all grist for the mill. Mm. Everything you experience will feed into your books. And I'm actually, I often say to authors who ask about creative writing courses, you know, don't put too much faith in them. They can be very, very helpful, but real life is more helpful than anything else. And writing is the most important thing. Where I think creative writing courses can be very, very useful is if they help you sit down and force you to write. Yeah, because a lot of writers, they need that structure. They need someone there telling them, right, we want to see, you know, five pages this week or, you know, t- t- a short story this month. And when you're doing it by yourself, sometimes it can be hard to find the impetus to go on. And I think if you were part of a group, whether it's a creative writing course or a group of writers, and you, you, know, you feel more compelled to produce, then that can help you. But the most important thing for any writer is to write. Mm. I always say, no shortcuts. The more you write, the more you learn, the better you get. And if you do that, if you're prepared to put in the hours and hours and weeks and months and years, you'll get your rewards at the end of that. Yeah. Not necessarily some rewards because most writers don't make any money. Well, it's writing <laughs> something yeah. that's really, that you know is good, that is the best thing you can produce. And that's you know, when, you, when you really start to fly and you, you know it's a change in your work and you can see yourself evolving. That's just an incredible feeling. Yeah. Because even the the saga of Darren Shan series, I believe that it sold in 40 countries and you sold 25 million copies, which is just so crazy to imagine. Like if you think about even the population of Ireland, we only have, I don't know, like five to seven million, we'll say, you know, but it's just like to think that you created this world in your head, like this fantasy world and that 25 million people will say or so, you know, would have read it is just amazing. Like you've created this world. Like, it's just, you know, it's insane. Like, how do, I suppose I could be hard to describe what that feels like. It, it's bizarre. Um, now, it doesn't, it didn't happen overnight. I got my breakthrough very early. Um, mm. Every writer feels incredibly old, I find. You know, I talk, I, I don't know if I'm talking to teenagers and they say, what age you get your first book published at? And I say 27. I see them and look at shock and oh my God, I'm going to have to wait back. <laughs> Writing is usually something, you don't start to hit your peak to your sort of 30s, maybe even 40s. Uh, there are exceptions to those rules, but there are exceptions mostly. You know, it takes a lot of time. And I was quite uh, an insular young man. I was quite, quite a sort of um, locked myself away, a hermetic type of life. Mm. So I did a lot more writing through my teens and early 20s than most people would who were going out there enjoying the world, which is why I think I got through, got a major breakthrough a bit earlier. Mm. But um, yeah, it's, by the time it happened, it felt natural. I remember as a teenager, you know, I was. I, if you ask me what I dream was, it'd be, oh, yes, I want to sell millions of copies, any best-selling author like Stephen King. Uh, but my, by my sort of late teens, I realised it was very unlikely. You know, because some of the writers I love most, you know, weren't able to write full-time to make a living. And my favourite author is a guy called Jonathan Carroll. And, yeah, his books have never sold in huge amounts. And he's always had a, a career as a, a teacher or a lecturer. But, um, you yeah, know, my, my sort of aim by my late teens, early 20s, was if I could make a living doing it full-time, I'd be delighted. And if I was making minimum wage, for me, that would be all the financial justification. I just wanted to be able to do it five days a week as a normal job and to be able to afford to do that. And I, I sold a couple of adult books and, you know, for not very much money. 
that uh, men are so I'm the most excited I've ever been. You know, you're, you're, if you're watching the films about adults, I'd call it my punched the air moments mm. when um, we, we finally managed. Search Freak was turned down by 20 publishers. Nobody wanted to touch it when we, my agent first sent it around. And we finally managed to get one on board, HarperCollins. And when it came, I got a letter from him. You know, it was, it was the days before I could afford a uh, computer or the internet. So we used to have the occasional phone call, but most of our correspondence was through was by letters. And, you know, I got a letter one day saying, yep, HarperCollins have agreed to buy the book. And it wasn't, it wasn't for a huge amount, but it was enough that I could afford to come off to Dull. And that was about, I knew for at least one year, I could I could be a full-time writer, even though it's like, wasn't even minimum wage, but yeah, it was just enough that I wouldn't have to draw the doll. I could justify my existence to, to other people. And that was like, yes. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it took a couple of years before they published that freak because mm. I got cold feet. The editor who took it on went away to have twins and she ended up not coming back. And her replacement came in and like every other editor read it, she read through this and thought, my God, this is horrific. We can't publish this. You know, this is way too dark for children to be owe. You know, and they tried to sell the rights back to us. But since we had nowhere else to turn, my agent said, no, you bought, you paid for it. You're stuck with it. So they reluctantly published it. And um, on the way to publication, things started to change. Um, people in-house read it and they really liked it and clicked with it. I did a lot of rewrites and editing. And, you know, I got it much sharper and you know, I found ways to improve it. Um, and then uh, Warner Brothers, the movie company, uh, mm. optioned it. Not, not long after it came out, for a big shoot. It, it never actually got made with him, but you know, it was a big, big deal when it happened that got a lot of publicity. So uh, yeah, I went from being a complete failure with Certain Freak to being a you know, 25 million selling author. Yeah. Um, but it didn't happen overnight. It took a few years for it to get going. It was gradual things happening. And yeah, but by the time I sort of realized, you know, I was a, a success, it was just sort of part of my normal life by that stage. It just, yeah, yeah. My life never really changed. I didn't go crazy. It wasn't like you get sometimes with actors or pop stars or footballers where you get this sudden huge success and it goes to the heads and suddenly the life is, is excess. You know, I've always lived in Palace Kenry where, you know, I moved back to when I was six. My family is here. My life changed completely in that I suddenly started touring all around the world and going to countries that, you know, I'd, some of them I'd, ne I'd never even read about before. Mm. But I was always coming back home. Home was always here in Limerick. I'd always come back here. This is where I did my work. This is where I lived most of my life. And that side of things didn't change hardly at all. You said you toured all over the world. You know, like the whole thing of, of big in Japan. Like, where are you biggest? Where is, where is your... I, I, I'm, I'm, hu I'm huge in Japan. <laughs> I, I was such a, a freak. Um, yeah, it, it became, as I said, it wasn't an overnight sensation here. But in Japan, it became huge very, very quickly. Mm. I experienced a sort of twilight level of success in Japan. You know, the first book came out and it just went, they went crazy for it. Uh, unlike here, where it was read, read most by children and teenagers, in Japan, they marketed it as a fantasy series for 18 to 30 year old women. And it just went absolutely huge. Oh. Uh, I, went, I, I did a few tours about Japan, you know, there was big, huge audiences and uh, it, was, it was incredible. Yeah, so I love that. That was really, it was really, really different. I remember the first time I was over there, was in 2002. I actually went out for the, for the World Cup. Mm. I followed the boys in green over there and um, I did a sort of an event uh, while I was there. And I'll, I'll never forget turning up to the, um, I was doing a, a little meet and greet in a shopping centre. And I went along and there were hundreds of people waiting outside who weren't actually part of the meet and greet, but they just wanted to come to get, get a glimpse of me. Mm. And I thought, well, look, these, all these people have turned up. So I said to the, the team who organised it, I got there, you know, an hour or two earlier. I said, well, I, can I go and meet some of those? You know, sort of, I don't want them just standing there and, you know, looking at me. And I said, 
no, 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 no. You can't do that. It could be a crush and people could die. Wow. I realised this is a very, a very different situation. So, yeah, I, at that stage, I'd be going into libraries over here and little schools and, you know, there might be, you know, 10 people, 12 people. Sometimes there might be two people in a library. Uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, no, I, I, I was very, very lucky. Like, I've toured all, all across the States several times. Um, I, I went around Europe. Mostly it was the UK and Ireland because, um, they were, yeah, this was the home for me and the easiest place to get to. But I've been to Australia, the Middle East. Yeah, no, I got, I got pretty much all over the place. It was a very, very, I was very, very fortunate. I got to you know, travel so many places, meet lots of readers, hopefully make lots of new readers, going to schools all over the place. Uh, but yeah, Japan I've always had that special affinity for because it was just yeah. such a flip of what it was over here. Mm. Um, it was just su superstar, a brief taste of what superstardom was like. Yeah, yeah, so that was like a right uh, rock star kind of lifestyle. But but even like, I remember a few years ago, again, you know, even still, but your books were absolutely everywhere. And they had lovely, vibrant colours and they just, they were everywhere. And then you had the film. But how involved were you in the film? Like it had a star-studded cast. It had uh, John C. Riley and I think Josh Hutchison. So like hands-on were you with the film or did you have much interaction with it? Or, you know, how did that work? No, no. I, I had nothing to do with the film. Okay. Uh, I do like it. I think it's, it's very, very unfaithful to the books. It's, you know, I get lots of fans who do hate it with a passion because, you know, it's very, very loosely based in the books. But um, I like it on its own terms. I think it worked quite well. It was a nice freaky little film. It's, it's enjoyed a bit of a renaissance in recent years. It came out at the time and was a big flop. A lot of critics took against it because they saw it as a Twilight cash-in, even though the books had been around for a long time before Twilight, and the film had been in production long before Twilight. You know, it came out in the middle of all the Twilight uh, fever. And so there were quite a few film critics who'd never heard of books or anything like that, and they just wrote it off immediately as, oh, yeah, we're just doing this to try and, you know, cash in on Twilight. Um, I think in its own terms, it worked really well, and it has enjoyed a renaissance, as I said. It, it's been on, on Netflix in recent years, it was on Sky movies for a long time. And it's really sort of built up a cult following through, through being on the, on the TV and, and streaming. And um, But no, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, yeah. I would have liked to have been, but I know I'm a big, big movie fan. Unlike a lot of authors who maybe live in a world of books, you know, I spend a lot more time in the cinema over the years than I do reading. I read quite a lot as well, but, you know, I absolutely love cinema and, and TV. And I've read lots of books about cinema and about interviews with authors whose work have been adapted and, you know, the reality is they can do whatever they like. You know, sometimes they involve an author. Most times they don't. They don't want you anywhere near it. Um, if they do involve you, sometimes that's good. Other times that, that, that can be terrible for a movie. Sometimes they need a complete break. Some of the best movies have been loose adaptations where they've kept the authors at arm's length and you know, gone around with it. So, yeah, it would have been nice to have been a bit more involved, but they didn't, they didn't want me in it. So I set out of it. I didn't yeah. try. I didn't try. You can't control. Once you get on that horse... You can't control it. So I just let it buck away by itself somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, went, I went to the film premiere. I, the only thing I did was um, I angled to get the, film, the European film premiere in Limerick, which we did, and we did have that. Wow. So it opened, it opened the Omniplex or anywhere else uh, really? outside of America. Yeah. So that was a good star studded night. Well, I was only star there, so not that star. <laughs> <laughs> None of the cast came over for it. But yeah, it, it, it's a fun movie. Yeah. You know, we are in the process of hopefully having it rebooted. Uh, most likely as a TV series. Wow. Uh, working on a script, as a team of states working on a script, which will then pitch to studios. So it's still very early in the process, but hopefully um, we'll see the light of day again at some point. And yeah, if I'm involved this time, it will be nice. But yeah, if they want me at arms, then I'm happy to stay there as well. I've always focused on the writing. I mean, yeah. the, most, the thing I can control is my work. 
you know, the books that I create, I have complete control over those. Whereas, you know, in Hollywood, as, you know, this guy living in Palace Kedry, I have no control of what they do. And rather than spend a lot of time trying to control that, which I can't control, I focus on that, which I can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing that that's going to be turned into a series or that there's there's talks because you're still um, hopefully, hopefully hopefully touch wood touch wood but you're still I mean as you said you're focusing on writing but you're still so busy because you're working on the Archibald Locke series and I thought it was really cool I know that you actually released it ahead of time around April last year because of lockdown so it was kind of like a gift to your fans to help them get through lockdown so I just thought that was just so nice and just you know just really a really cool thing to do because things like that like it's mad how you know your favorite film or your favorite book or whatever can really help you get get through such a tough time and I know that the the next volume or the next series and that is going to be published this year so do you have like a a date or is there any kind of date we can put in the diary uh I don't have a specific date yet as so basically Vartable Locks there were three big volumes I wrote it as individual huge books but then when I came to release it, I decided to break it down into three shorter books, especially primarily for the ebook market, because um, it just makes it a lot easier. The first book I was able to uh, release for free. So that give people the chance to buy it, you know, to, to try it. If you don't like it, they haven't spent anything for that to go on. If they do, they can do that. Um, I've also released it as a bind up as one big thick volume. And I'll do the same thing with volume two and three. Um, so there'll be three books in volume two. Uh, I'm still mulling over how exactly I'm going to release them. I might release them all together at the same time, like I did with the first three. I might space them out a couple of months in between. I'm not sure. But the first one, or all three, depending on how I go, will probably come out towards the middle of the year, I'd say. Um, summertime, maybe July, sort of way, August. Uh, I'm very close to doing my final edit of the volume. I mean, it'll be going to my copy editor in March. So I'll get that back from her, but I'll do another sort of draft late March into April. And after that, we'll just need a few months to line it up properly and you know get, get a plan in place. There was no plan in the first volume. I tried planned to release that in the autumn time. Mm. And then when the lockdown happened, I just felt like I said that you know I wanted to put something out there for the fans to be able yeah. to read. It'd be like four years since my last series had finished. Mm. And I just felt, look, can I do this? And I got in touch with my uh, cover designer and he said, Yeah, you could rush it through for me. Um, my copy editor was able to get onto it quickly. And so I just, yeah, I just went for it. I actually released it. Uh, towards the end of March, I, I made the announcement late on April Fool's Day. Oh. <laughs> I, I presented it as a joke. I said, oh, am I being serious or am I joking? And quite a few fans thought I was joking until they only found out the next day that we actually <laughs> had released three books unknown to anyone. Yeah, well, no, that's a lovely gesture. And I say, like I say, you got a lot of good feedback from it. I say people were delighted. Yeah, they enjoyed it. Yeah. It was a fun, it was a nice treat. And like I say, it was the middle of the first lockdown. Yeah. And, we were all a bit weary of it and mm. I think we'd have been weary if we'd known how much longer it was going to be going on but well, yeah I just think it was just, it was a nice thing to do and I just mm. felt I just had this gut feeling and even though it meant from public from a publicity point of view it sort of hurt me what I could do with it and mm. you know at the time I started, I started taking it to reviewers and things the books were already out they'd been, you know, they'd been released there was no chance to set things up but it, it just felt like the right thing to do and yeah I just went with it. Yeah, well, a lovely gesture. And I suppose in lockdown, you have a lot of time and I know you have two small kids at home. So like, are, how are you finding writing and, and I suppose working during this time? Is it, is it busy? Is it manic or are you enjoying it? Oh, I always enjoy working. Uh, I don't get to work as much as I used to do. Hmm. We say with two children in life. My, my oldest, my boy is six. So he would be at school. Uh, and our daughter is just coming up to two. She'll be two in March. So, um, yeah, if, if it wasn't the lockdowns this year, I would have had a, had, had a very, very productive year. 
but obviously when Dante, my son, was off, you know, for, for six months, whatever, however long it was, you know, I had to help him, you know, help looking after him. And so, yeah, so my, my writing routine took a bit of a knock, but um, yeah, I've sort of found a way to make it work. And I might only get two or three hours of work a day, but I squeeze in as much as I can. So yeah, yeah, it's been um, mildly productive year. By my standards, you know, I haven't been doing as much as I would like to do, but uh, I did finish, I finished the first draft of the third volume of Archibald Locks. So that was a big, big thing. Yeah. I've been sitting on the shelf for a while. Um, I sort of got stuck midway and there's a few other things going on. So I finally returned back this year and forced myself through it. And it was difficult because I couldn't, normally I do, you know, 10 pages a day when, I, when I'm writing the first draft. I write very, very swiftly, about 3,000 words a day. But, yeah, because I had so little time to work on it, I was maybe only doing, you know, three, four pages a day, which is a very, very big book. So it took me you know, months and months to, to plough through, which wasn't the most enjoyable part of my life. But, yeah, I got an end and I got it done and it's there now and I can go in and edit it and start, uh, sharpen it up and get it all going. So, yeah, that's been a nicely productive year. Hopefully 2021 will see me yeah. a little bit busy producing a bit even more. I like to, um, I like to be productive. I've always been well, a very, I've released a lot of books in my time and yeah, the last few years, <laughs> I'd like to get back in the groove of, you know, bringing out more books and people can keep up with. Yeah, yeah, geez, you have a great work ethic because you have such a catalogue of books and just writing behind you and 3,000 words a day is, is no mean feat either because like with your books as well, it's not like you're just writing 3,000 words a day, you have to think it out, you know, so what's, what's the process of writing a book because, you know, like you nearly have to have a, a spider web of who's who and, you know, and keep track of, of what's happened before and what's happened since. So like, how do you sit, do you just sit down and kind of let it come out of your pen or do you have to really plan it out or what do you have to do to, to get it written? It's different from book to book. Um, sometimes I do minimal planning, like Cert of Freak. I just jotted down a few ideas and half a, half a sheet of A4 paper. Mm. And I just worked away from that. Um, usually I will plan them in quite close detail. So I like to draw up a little list. I'll go through and I'll write out a rough idea. And then I'll sometimes go back and break it down into sort of chapters and write a, note, a line or two for what I want in each chapter. And that, can, that will change along the way. But I find having... A good planning place at the start helps me go forward with it. It just helps me you know, know where, where I go. It gives me the confidence you know, in mid, when I'm my mid-book. You know, the middle of a, of a book is always, uh, mm. you know, the start of a book is great. You're, you're introducing all the new characters, you get lined everything up. It's great, exciting. You fly through it. You're getting towards the end of a book. It's all coming to a closer. You're excited again. You're killing characters off if you're a horror writer like me. And yeah, it's really <laughs> exciting. But that sort of middle period, it can be a... Uh, you know, you, you feel like you're at sea in, a, in an old sailboat and the winds have dropped. <laughs> you're just drifting around. The story's not going anywhere. Yeah. You start thinking it's the worst book there's ever been and yeah. the readers going to be bored. Um, and so if you've got a plan, I find if I've got a, a fairly detailed plan, that helps me get through those stages because I can tick off each chapter as I go along and I can see myself making progress. Even though it doesn't feel like I am, I look at my sort of chapter headings and I realise, oh, actually, now I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Uh, although I work in an unusual way, which actually helps me, I think. Whereas most writers would work exclusively on one book at a time. You know, they'll do a first draft, then they'll go back and rewrite it and edit it and edit it and edit it, and then put it out and then start book two. I juggle the books. So I'll do a first draft of book one. Then I'll do a first draft of book two. I'll go back and rewrite book one, rewrite book two, do a first draft of book three, back to book one, and so on. So if you look at my series, they're very, very cunning cunningly structured you know there's, there's there'll be like little throwaway lines in book what book two or three 
and you won't be until you get to book nine or ten that you'll realize ah that's what that was about if you go back and reread it and that's not because i plot so so cleverly way in advance it's because when i'm editing book one i'm also writing the first draft of book nine or book ten i'm able to take things from that later book and weave in little sort of teasers of what's to come so i might mention a character by name but you don't see until book six you know i might throw in some some little obscure reference that means nothing when you get to the last book in the series and you realize oh hang on that was a huge giveaway very very early on wow. um, and that's because of the unusual way i work by juggling the books yeah. it allows me to weave them together much more tightly it's quite chaotic um, but in my mind it makes sense it's about finding what works for you there's no correct way of writing you find a way that works for you and you go with it and you fly yeah, well, you're flying anyway. <laughs> you seem to be flying, yeah. and my my mind boggles at, at, at trying to keep all that up. But even I suppose thinking up characters as well is it something? I know a lot of writers they'd be out and about, and they'd see someone on the bus, and they'd you know they they'd fit the kind of character that they've come up with in their head, if you know what I mean. Like they they take inspiration from everyday life, or maybe people they know, or you know they'd have a, a a loving character, and that might come from their wife or their mother, you know what have you. But does your characters like does any of your you know your real life blend into your books are there any characters that mirror people you know or is it all from your imagination yeah that, that happens all the time my, my characters i never know much about my characters when i start the books they will for me they grow out of storytelling every writer's different some writers they begin with the characters and they work very deep deep with the characters and they come up with backgrounds for them and you know we look at the relationships and all these sorts of things and then the plot sort of grows out of that with me it's the other way around the plot comes first and as i start writing the characters will grow and develop and react to what's happening in the plot and they come together then. But yeah, I do bring in things, things from real life. I use lots of names of people I know. So loads of characters in my books are named after real people. They're not necessarily always based on those people, mm. but yeah, I'll bring in names and use it, use them. Uh, they usually get killed off in some horrible way, that's quite, or, they're, or they're, they're nasty villains. That's always, anyone I mention in my books is someone that I like. So if they play a, you know, a, the most horrific villain imaginable, mm -hmm. um, which happened in my zombie series, there's a character called Dan Dan, who's basically a, a, a sort of um, a Jimmy Savile crossed with a serial killer okay. um, who, who dresses up in a sailor's outfit and kidnaps children and does terrible things to them. Okay. Uh, and I named him my, my wife's nephew, who was like six or seven years of age at the time. But yeah, it's just you know, people who know me know I've got a sort of weird sense of humour, and they always like it. If they end up in a book, you know, they like to be these weird characters. They don't just want to be the ordinary character who does nothing. They want to be the hard villains and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, talking about things that happen in real life. So Archibald Locks all began with a little real life instant. Um, I was walking over a bridge in London and I saw a young woman walking towards me and she was pulling these strange faces, twisting her nose around, sort of like gurning a bit. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was strange. I walked past her. I don't know what she, you know, why she was doing that. She just had a itchy nose. But my mind started worrying. I started thinking, well, why would somebody be doing that? And I just suddenly thought, well, what if that was a way of opening a doorway between our universe and another universe. And the whole of Archibald Locks grew out that single, you know, matter of brief passing between two ships in the space of a couple of seconds. It all grew out of whatever, whatever that woman was twitching her face that specific day or that specific bridge led to this huge free volume work. Wow, well, little does she know. <laughs> no, no, I imagine, I imagine not, but it'd love if she didn't pop up one day and say, ah! Yeah, you owe me royalties or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised. <laughs>
but like I know you said that your um nephew you've you've named a character after him or you know you take inspiration from that but are you ever going to maybe put your children into it or when are you going to let them read your books or are they reading your books now well I know your son rather than your daughter yeah we we read certain three to my son I was gonna I think he was too young but my wife started reading to him and he really enjoyed it so we read the first book and he liked that but we sort of stopped at that point yeah, I've named actually a couple of characters after them in the new series in uh, Archibald Locks. There's Prince Dante, who's named after our son. And there's a, I think, I think she's a queen, so a queen or princess, Gaia, named after my daughter. So wow. they're in the new series. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if they'll be interested or not. Uh, I won't force my books on them. As I say, we started reading Search Freak and he enjoyed that, so we carried on with that. But um, yeah, I don't know. If, you know he, to me, to him, I'm just his dad. You know, yeah. I'm the guy who gives orders to him and makes him eat his food and forcing to get dressed to go out and walk so you know whether or not he'll want to read my books I don't know if he doesn't that'll be fine if, if he does and he likes them that'll be good too but um, <laughs> well, what, I'm I, what, what I suspect is going to happen is when he's a bit old he's going to read it and say that's rubbish and he start, <laughs> he'll start deconstructing them and telling me what's wrong <laughs> Oh, well, he might follow in your footsteps yet anyway, if he's reading them at six. So that's a very good sign. But just my final question now. So it is the, the Limerick Treasures podcast. The final question is, what do you treasure most about Limerick? So as you said, you lived in Palace Gennery for most of your life and your family are here and, and everything else. So what do you treasure most about Limerick? I mean, the thing that's most special for me is um, this little village where I live is where my parents come from and my grandparents and my great-grandparents. I knew, actually knew my great, one of my great-grandfathers. He was still alive when I was a child. And when we moved back to Ireland at six, we lived with him. He didn't die till I was uh, in my teens, about 15. So we had nearly 10 years of living with him. We moved back to a little old cottage, which he'd lived in most of his life. And we were there, we, knocked, yeah, we built a new house and knocked that down eventually. But um, yeah, I love going, yeah, I've seen the old the houses where my, my grandparents grew up and where my mother grew up and where my father grew up. You know, I see these houses all the time. I pass them, if not every day, you know, most days or you know, very, very, very regularly. I just like, I like walking the roads, knowing that, you know, my parents would have walked along this, these streets going into the, into the local school when they were kids. My grandfather, you know, in the, year, in the years before, he was born in 1925, so in the years before cars, they used to, you know, go into on a horse, horse and cart into Limerick, you know, once a week, wherever it was, he was a farmer, mm. you know, send stuff off the back of it, and very occasionally, my, you know, my mum would be taking him with him. You know, I like driving along those roads and knowing that I'm following their footsteps, horse and cart steps or whatever that is um, so yeah I love that but I love being so close to Curry Chase you know Curry Chase Forest Park uh, I, you know when I came back we my mum used to be a teacher in a Skeeton and we would go there most days a week she'd take me and my younger brother up there after school and we'd just run around there for an hour or two all weathers and you know 40 years later 42 years later I'm still going back to it taking my kids there now and yeah I, I like, we're very, very lucky to have it on our doorstep especially in lockdown that was very very um, important to us. It's one of the nice things living in the countryside, you know, generally speaking, you know, we, we live very close to um, Ring Mile and Pier, so we can go down by the Shannon and go for walks on there and stuff as well. But Kerry Chase, I also thought it's very, very special. And um, I, I love being so close to that. That's a really big part of, of my life. And, um, and Donkey Fords. I always throw in a mention of Donkey Fords. <laughs> yeah. Best fish and chips off in the world. <laughs> yeah. The old reliable had to get that one in. So I suppose, is there anything else you'd like to add? I know you have a lot coming up in 2021 and you don't have any dates for us yet, but we can expect something. So that's nice up ahead with all the madness that's going well, on. The middle of the year. Somewhere, somewhere in the summer, hopefully. It should be a July, August way, I, I would anticipate. There won't be much else apart from that, probably, except that's basically three books. I'll be releasing them quite close to each other, but it's still 
that's a, that's a big chunk of books. If, if I was releasing for a publisher, it'd probably be oh, every six months or so in, in between. I'd have been out quicker than that. But yeah, that's going to be the main thing. I'm not really touring. You know, no one's touring at the moment, obviously, because of COVID and the lockdowns. Um, I hadn't been touring much the last few years anyway. I've been spending more time at home, spending time with my kids. Um, you know, I spent about 15, 16 years of constantly touring the world. And it got to a point where, you know, I just thought, I, I love it, but I just needed a little break to spend a bit more time on the home front. So yeah, those, those three books will be the big thing this year. I've released books for adults under the name of Darren Dash. So um, I'd like to release another one of those within the next year or two. Um, it's just whether or not I find time to fit it in around the Archibald Lock stuff. Um, we'll see how the editing process goes on, on volume three. Um, but yeah, if that, if that works out, maybe towards the end of the year or maybe even yeah, very early in 2022, I might release another Darren Dash book. Although wow. I have no idea at the moment what that would be. Well, well that's got a... several lined up to yeah. sort of go back and revise and edit. So it'll just be a case of picking one out and see where it takes me. Well, that's a, that's a hell of a lot of stuff. It mightn't be a lot for you, but it's a, it's a lot for anyone else. So that's amazing. So Darren Chan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Limerick Treasures podcast. We've lots of great content coming up this year, so please keep an eye out on all of our social media platforms. And remember, when Limerick speaks, we listen.